morning. We, uh, of course, as has been said, we're in this Thrive series, this idea of how do Christians thrive and what is the role of the Word of God in helping facilitate that. And, and what we're looking at today is uh, something that sort of rides on the heels of last week's discussion about authority, and that is the sufficiency of the Bible. Before I get into that, though, I need to make a few corrections. I learned during the week that I'd made three errors, at least three that I know of so far, so I didn't hear from all of you, but three errors in, in uh, 39 minutes last week. Uh, first, I mentioned John 20, 20 and 21, when I really meant John 20, 30 and 31, and so I got a little note about that just to remind me, and it's good because we'll address that later today. Uh, secondly, I said that the consistency and the veracity of the Bible was att is attested to by over 10,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, um, ancient, ancient uh, texts, and, and I learned that 40 years ago. I mean, I learned that back in, you know, 1980, that uh, we had over 10,000 manuscripts that were extant that, that together showed that the Bible that we have is reliable and consistent. I've been updated this week by some people who have some more recent scholarship. It's over 25,000 manuscripts now. And by comparison, uh, if you look at ancient works of antiquity like uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad or anything like that, you're typically looking at maybe six copies. Um, remarkable difference. So, so actually, uh, the support that we have for the scriptures is even more than, than what I mentioned in terms of external support. The third mistake had to do with uh, fake news. And so I think that's important. We've got to address that. I'm, I'm not sure that, that it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure that my mistake was too severe, but I, I still wanted the record to stand. I, I made a comment in, in, in an example I used of where improper authority or unwise authority um, shows up all over the place. And I used an example of, I said, a right-leaning U.S. president, some of whose policies and decisions accomplish good things, which I really mean, but who at times acts like a fool, like retreating favorably when someone called him the king of kings. And I was corrected. Um, I was corrected by somebody who said, well, the guy didn't really call him the, the king of kings. What he said, and this is the actual retweet, thank you, Wayne Allen Root, for the nice words. President Trump is the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, not just America, and the Jewish people in Israel love him like he's the king of Israel. They love him like he is the second coming of God. I actually think that's worse than what I said, but um, I still, I don't want to leave fake news on the, uh, as my record, okay? So I just want that to be clarified right from the get-go. But last week we did assert that because the Bible is God's word, not man's, and, and because it is inerrant, and because it's been preserved as remarkably as it has been, and because of its historical veracity and, and uh, uh, support and its internal consistency, I pointed out the, the fact that um, for a biblical Christian, there is no other fundamental source of reliance than the Bible. Um, that's the final word. But this week, as we look at a different attribute, the attribute of sufficiency, we have to ask the question, what is the Bible sufficient for? Um, 
The Bible isn't going to be sufficient for telling you whether to put braces on your mouth, on your teeth, or, or if so, whether to use ceramic or metal or Invisalign. A lot of normal day-to-day things, what kind of software to use, that's not found in the Bible, and the Bible doesn't pretend to be sufficient for that. But the Bible does pretend, does assert that it is sufficient for much more important things. And we're going to look at three of them today. And um, these three, uh, I appreciated uh, something Steve Viers, who's a pastor of Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana, pointed out in a book, Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling, where he said that in his observation, he saw the Bible being completely sufficient for at least three things. One is to enable us to come to know God. Two, to motivate and enable us to trust God. And three, to enable us to obey God completely. And that's what we're going to look at today. What is the Bible sufficient for? And we're going to start right off with this idea of the Bible is sufficient to enable you and me to know God, to trust God, and to obey God. And I think that what we should find is that if those things are true, that's amazing what that provides us the material for doing. Now, when we talk about getting to know God, the, the first one of those, it's important that we talk about knowing God in two different ways. We're going to talk about knowing God as in being born again, is the words Jesus uses in John 3, meaning meeting God through faith in Christ. Let's look at three verses that address that very thing. We're going to look at these three together, so I'm just going to Quote them back to back, if, if you don't mind, then we'll combine the comments from it together. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So this first idea that the Bible says, that we're looking at at least, regarding the knowledge of God, is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, and that that's actually eternal life. The second thing we look at right now, John 20, verses 30 and 31, not 20 and 21. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, the Apostle John was saying the whole purpose for reading, writing the Gospel of John was to give enough evidence that anybody could read it and realize there's plenty of evidence for knowing that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and that He is who He said He is, that He came to die for your sins and mine, that He was raised from the dead. And all who believe that are given eternal life. And that's why John wrote that gospel. And so that's the, the second thing we look at. Third verse that we might look at, kind of all together in this, is, is uh, 1 John chapter 5. Verses 11 through 13, which, which reads, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Pretty black and white there. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. God used this verse, this and one other passage, to lead me to saving faith as a college freshman. Uh, I was raised in a church where I knew very well that, that there was a God and that he existed as a triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I, my church caught very clearly that Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of the world and that he was raised from the dead 
And that was brought to us week by week, or in my case, day by day. I knew those facts. I just didn't understand the simplicity of the message that the Bible said, which is that people are given eternal life because of their faith in Christ. Of course, that faith is meant to grow. We'll talk about that in a second. But that what the Bible starts with is that apart from a person coming to understand that it's a gift of God, not the result of works, apart from that, a person can't come to know God. And, and to me, this is a great illustration of why we need the Bible. You know, the, the, the Bible, the, 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 there are many things we can see in the world that point to the majesty of God. But anything out there in the beauty of creation is not enough to tell me it's not enough to tell me that, John, you know you're a sinner. I, I let that message be in you, that message that you're a sinner. But there's no way through creation I would have known that God had a plan whereby he saved men, women, and children who trusted in his son and what he did for them. And that that's their only boast. I mean, that's a crazy plan. None of us could come up with that on our own. We need the Word of God for that. And so this first part of knowing God is just what we would call being born again. It's just coming to the knowledge of God through faith in Christ. But here's the thing. If any of us make the mistake of thinking that the knowledge of God is all about being born again, that's like saying that uh, marriage is all about wearing a tuxedo and a white dress, saying I do, and having bird seed thrown at you. You know, those things go together. When people get married, a lot of times they throw bird seed. A lot of times they wear tuxes and white dresses. I mean, that's, that's common. But if you've ever been married, you know that those little facts, although that may make you get married, that's hardly knowing squat about marriage. It's the same way about coming to know God. Do we come to know him at a point in time by faith in the gospel? Absolutely. If you've never come to that point, I hope today would be the day. God is always reaching out to add to his family. He always wants people who never understood your sin is your problem. Don't try to fix it. My son paid for it. And he offers eternal life to all who believe that. But folks, that's just saying I do. That's just the beginning. In fact, it says in Romans 5, we have obtained an introduction into this life of faith. It's, it's an introduction, that's all. So when we talk about knowing God, we have to talk about something else. I, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, because I think we need to talk about this idea of knowing God. We've said that the Bible is sufficient for knowing God. We've said that the Bible is sufficient for trusting God. And we've said the Bible is sufficient for obeying God. But what's this whole thing about knowing God? It, it, something more than merely being born again. Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at two verses. Two verses I briefly alluded to last week. Let's look at it. Um, reading in the New American Standard, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us 
everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. Notice that the first thing it says is that grace and peace are multiplied to us. He, he doesn't just say added, although that word was available. He's saying that whatever grace, whatever peace you have so far received as a Christian will actually be increased by a factor, a multiplier. That's what he's saying. And by the way, we know he's not talking about how to come to know Christ. We know this is not about being born again because the very first verse says, I'm writing this to people who have the sa- a faith of the same kind as ours. Okay, so 2 Peter is written to believers. So this is not talking about how to come to meet God. This is for people who have already met God. And what he's saying is, if you're a Christian today because you believe the gospel, he's got great news for you. And the great news is, you've just met him. You've just said, I do. But the real power of the Christian life, the thing that Jesus actually refers to as eternal life is actually growing in the knowledge of him. That's why this same book, 2 Peter, ends with the words, therefore grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because sometimes we make a mistake of thinking, because I believe the gospel, I've done the Christian thing. And what God is saying is, oh, you've walked into the door and I'm glad to have you. Now let's get started. But isn't it interesting that it says grace and peace are multiplied not to everybody. It says in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In other words, it's as you and I grow in the knowledge of him that that grace is multiplied, that peace is multiplied. It doesn't mean every Christian will experience four times, eight times, 15 times as much grace and peace as what they've already had. Because there are many times Christians stop in their knowledge of Christ. And the next verse helps us even a little bit more at understanding not only will God, if you and I grow in the knowledge of God, which is what this whole discussion about the Bible this fall, this thrive thing is all about. It's about using the Bible for the purposes God gave it to us for. And the purpose he gave it to us for, yes, is to be born again. John writes that. But it's also that we might grow in the knowledge of him. Notice. Notice what this next phrase uh, says it says he has his divine power has already given you all that you need to experience life and godliness by his divine power you've already been given everything necessary for god life and godliness folks i'll tell you i've been a christian for 40 uh, uh 44 years and it wasn't until a little over 10 years even though i'd studied this book intently. I'd even written a 90-page commentary on it back uh, years ago in seminary. Um, I, this, I, I thought I knew this book, but it wasn't until 10 or 12 years ago that I realized God was making a vow, a promise to me. John, the more that you get to know me, the more whatever grace you've already received will be multiplied in your experience. It'll the more peace will be multiplied. And what's more, 
I, I always thought that I was lacking in godliness because I just wasn't as good as some people and because I had been in worse places than they. You know, Mark Carey and I are good friends. We've been together for 26 years. Um, but I remember in early years here, I would just think I, I can never be like Mark. I mean, Mark wanted to be a pastor when he was five. You know, I mean, how do you want to be a pastor when you're five? Um, the, the, the places I've been, I'm glad Mark hasn't had to be there. But I, re, I remember just thinking there's no way I could be really godly. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that. If you've ever compared yourself to somebody and thought, I'll never measure up. I don't know if any of you have ever thought, I'll never really have the kind of life. I've, I've been around some people who when I get to know them, I see life in them. I can name them to you. I won't go into that right now. But people who, when I'm with them for a little while, I realize that gal has something I don't have. That man has something deep about him that I don't know. That's what he's talking about when he says everything necessary for life has been given to you. He's not talking about necessary for being born again because that's already established for these people. He's not talking about being biologically alive. He wouldn't be writing to biologically dead people. He's only talking to Christians and he's only saying to Christians, do you realize that everything necessary to have what I call abundant life has already been given to you? Folks, that was new to me 10 years ago. Because I kept thinking there's something I'm not getting, there's something I'm not getting, there's something I'm not getting because I don't experience the life I see in these people. But notice what it says. It says everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you, but then it tells you how it comes. Through the true knowledge of Him. That little word, true, it's actually true knowledge is one word in Greek, and what it means is the experiential knowledge. So when we talk about the Bible being sufficient for us to know God, yes, to meet him, to be born again, absolutely. But more importantly, the Bible is sufficient for me to experience God, to have an experiential knowledge where when I begin to apply things he says, I notice, wow, that's new in my life. See, that's what he wants for me. That's what he wants for you. That's really what the Bible says it is available for to enable us to know God such that we will actually experience life and godliness and greater grace and greater peace. Folks, I'm signed up. But what's such a joy is if you're already a Christian, you've already been given everything necessary, all that's lacking is the growth in the knowledge of this person, Jesus Christ. And by the way, we won't go there today. We don't have the time, but I will make mention of it because I think it's significant. Very interesting that in, the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, it actually tells us that Satan's main goal in working on believers is one thing. It's to keep them from the knowledge of God. Isn't that interesting? That his main goal with believers... We know his main goal with unbelievers is to keep them from coming to believe. We know that. But it says his main goal with believers is to keep them from knowing God. Why? Because if I get to know God, I'll experience true life. If I get to know God, I'll experience more grace. I won't be so disposed to give up, which I normally am. I'll be more, I'll be more experiential of peace. 
And that doesn't mean he'll keep bad things from happening to me. Goodness sakes, anybody who knows my life knows that my Christmas letters to friends back home in Texas used to always be known as the General Hospital Chronicles. He hasn't chosen to deliver me from those things. But what he's been telling me over and over and over and over is, I'm going to give you something better than deliverance on earth from all the things you wish wouldn't happen. I'm going to give you me. And that me is far richer than all the things you're running in fear of. That's the knowledge of God. I want more of that. I hope you do too. What else is it sufficient for? It's sufficient to enable me to trust God. Open your Bibles to the passage that was mentioned early in the sermon, I mean, the, the, mess, the uh, service today, Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to see something else here that the Bible is sufficient for besides knowing God. I'll read in the New American Standard, verses 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What does it tell us? What does it tell us about trusting God? Well, if the Bible is authoritative, this is what it teaches us. That for starters, the Bible is perfect. It's a word that means complete. In other words, it's, it's all that is needed. It doesn't mean that it includes everything in the world that happens to be true. I mean, even John said in his gospel that the whole world could not contain the books if everything Jesus did was recorded. So it's not saying the Bible includes everything that happens to be so. It's just saying it is complete, it is thorough, it is everything that you and I need to know God and to trust God. And one of the ways that I know that is because of what it accomplishes. It says it restores our soul. If you think about it, if you've ever gone to somebody for counsel, or if you've ever cried out to God, or if you've ever struggled with something, you struggle with your 14-year-old son who just won't understand how important the decisions he makes today are for his life. Because it doesn't feel at age 14 like any decisions you make are really important. What does the Bible tell you when you're in the middle of your anxiety, in the middle of your anger, in the middle of your fear? That the Bible will restore your soul. Why is that a big deal? Well, because as you deal with your son... If it's coming out of a place of fear, if it's coming out of a place of frustration, if it's coming out of a place of resentment, I tell you what, you'll do more harm than good with that boy. I've been there. Some of you have too. But if it's really true that the Bible restores your soul, it means God is able, because of his word, if I'll ingest it and digest it and utilize it, he can put my heart, my soul, my, which means inner life, he can put my inner life to rest. He can restore it. And you know, folks, 
when we're struggling, mostly what we're struggling with is we feel our life, our inner life that is, is kind of blown to bits. It's, it's, it's fractured. Most of the time what we're really looking for is restoration of the inner person. And bless his name, that's precisely what he says his word will do. What else? Well, it says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I love that. Because you see, the simple is a person who hasn't made a decision about whether to go on a wise path or whether to go on a foolish path. That's what the simple is. The simple is somebody who's sort of at the, at the apex, if you will, they're, they're maybe a, or whatever you call that lower part, not apex because that would be up like that. But anyway, whatever the bottom is of a Y, you know, it's like they're right here. I wish I had something to draw with it. Okay, that's my Y. Now, if you happen to be right here at the point of decision and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to handle this. You're going to choose a path, and it will either be wise or it will be foolish. And what does this say? It is sure. His way is sure. That is, his way is, is certain, and it will make wise the person who doesn't know for sure what to do. I love that because that's me. I need that. It goes on to say that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I love this too. Precepts happen to be those uh, didactic instructions. In other words, do this, don't do this. Kind of the black and white stuff. That's a precept. Precept is, here is the way it goes. It's not the narrative. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not the, um, you know, the whole message. The precept is these things God lays out like, I have said this, and I've said this, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, that is a precept. There are thousands of precepts in the Bible. But what he says about the precepts, they're right. That is, you can trust them. You see, why do I need to know that? Because I've been a Christian, I said, over 40 years, I still have an inborn tendency to doubt the precepts of God. I look at them, and sometimes I don't like them. And so I want to dodge them. And sometimes what I want is for God to prove to me they're right before I'll act on them. But what this verse is saying is, John, start it the other way around. Don't start wondering if it's right. Start with the assumption, the conclusion that's already been written. John, his precepts are always right. And what's more, this is so cool that he says this, and it will rejoice the heart. You see, a lot of times when I see the precepts of God, I just think they're going to bottle me up. They're going to put me in a place where I'll feel restricted, where I'll feel like life is being taken away. That's what I'm fearful of. But what does it say? You can trust that his precepts are accurate. And what's more, if you follow them, it will give joy to your heart. Folks, I need that. And the more I realize that that is true, the more I find that following God is literally a joy. That's what he says. The next, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That is, God's commands will light our path. God's saying, if you adhere to what I'm saying, 
you'll see that it will give light to your path. Does that mean you'll ever be in the dark? Yes. Sometimes we read these things and we read it, we read it in, a, in a way that is kind of overly simplistic. We say, oh, well, it says it lights my path, then I'll never be confused and in the dark. But wait a minute, the same Bible that says it lights your path says in Isaiah 50, verse 10 and 11, that some people who love the Lord, who are following the Lord, who are obeying the Lord, actually walk in darkness. And it's not accusing them of that as if it's sin. It's just saying God has allowed them to walk into a time of darkness. And it tells them what to do and what not to do in that setting. So it's not saying that everything is always rosy. It's just saying God's making a vow. His commandment is pure and it will enlighten your eyes. And so you can decide whether to trust it or not. See, I want my eyes enlightened, and I've found that on my own, I keep walking into walls. Left to my own devices, I'm a wall walker. Okay? I bang my head. Uh, one of our kids, when, when, when they were two years old, uh, they were very kind of goal-oriented and directive, and I remember one time walking behind them in the hallway, and they're walking, and one of the doors is open just about that much into the living room, and they walk, and they just smash their head right into the door, right at the edge of the door, right on the forehead like this. And they backed up one step and rubbed it. They moved over one step, and then they kept walking. Um, that was Maggie, by the way. Um, she, we really, we had people threatening to call CPS on us because she had a bruise on her head for a year and a half in her life. Not because of that one door, because she did it a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm going to really hear about that, I'm sure. But, but the point is, um, some of us are wall walkers. Some of us bang into things over and over. And God says, my word will enlighten your eyes. And folks, I need that. And the more my eyes are enlightened, the easier it is to trust him. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I need that. Well, isn't it interesting that the more that I'm in the Bible, that I actually still end up fearing God? Kind of interesting. I, I love the fact that Isaiah has what many people regard as the, the most beatific, the most saintly vision that anyone has ever had in history, at least the history of the Old Testament, of the glory of God in Isaiah 6. You, many of you are familiar with that passage. Mark preached it a year ago. But in that passage, it, it's clear that the first thing Isaiah does when he sees the Lord high and lifted up is to fall on his face and say, I'm an unclean, I'm, I, my lips are unclean, I'm an unclean man, I'm not, basically I'm not worthy to be here. And look at John, John who is, who is called the one whom Jesus loved. Many people regard him as Jesus' best friend, and that may be, I mean, after all, he was in the most intimate moments with Jesus, and Jesus gave his mother to him, but... Personally, I don't think the point of Jesus, the, the one whom Jesus loved, was to say he was his best friend. I think the main point is that's John's identity for himself. All John said is, the only thing I can tell you about me is I'm somebody Jesus really loves. And yet John, who knew Jesus as intimately as any human being, when he saw him in his risen state in Revelation chapter 1, what did he do? Boom, he was on his face. This tells me that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That doesn't mean it's a fear that doesn't make you love him. It just means, let's start out, folks, with the fact that this is somebody about whom the Bible says, in the beginning, God. 
And because it says in the beginning God, we realize that our natural estate when it comes to things of God is to fall on our face, and that's as it should be. But in his grace, he doesn't leave us down there. It's the Bible that teaches me to fear God. I don't think I would be led to fear God by observing nature. But if I look at the Bible very honestly, I sure better come away with the fear of God. I get concerned for those who don't because it tells me that there are a lot of the verses in the Bible that they're not reading. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. If, the, if any of you, whoever of you were here for, uh, how many of you got to be here either uh, Thursday night or Friday night or Saturday morning to hear Keith Farron? How many, just raise your hand if you're able to be here for part of that. Pretty good number of you. I mean, that was just so amazing. I just dearly love what that man shared. But uh, one of the things that stood out to me was how he made right from the very beginning, his point was, my goal is to get the Bible in churches, Bible teaching churches, to be less of an ought and more of a longing. And he did a great job of helping us see how the Bible can move from being an ought to being a longing. That's exactly what it says when it says more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. That's what he says. And, and you see, if that's really true, if he really does enlighten my eyes, if he really does rejoice my heart, if he really does restore my soul through this word, if the things we just read are true, I can trust him. See, that's the thing. If these things are accurately, actually true, I can actually trust him because of all the things it says that his word does. This God I know because of the Bible. The Bible enables me to know him both to meet him as a, a newly saved person and to grow in him. And now the Bible teaches me that, now the Bible teaches me that I'm able to trust him because of all these things about his word. And he finishes up this section by saying that it warns me and, and it points to a great reward. I need that. In my trusting of God, I need to know what to be warned away from, and I need to be known what to be drawn towards. And I'm just so grateful that he does that. But I'd like us to close with the third and final of the three things that we said the Bible enables us to do, that it's sufficient to do. Turn to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Because the Bible is also sufficient for enabling you and me to obey whatever God has for us. The Bible is sufficient... For us obeying him, to know him, to trust him, and to obey him. I'm going to read Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love these two verses. Really interesting because he says, he obviously is talking about obedience, right? Now, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now also in my absence. And what he's referring to there is, I don't know about you, have you ever been in a job where you tended to do more when your boss was around 
you know, you wanted to look good, and if you had a really controlling boss, you kind of felt the fear of that person as opposed to just doing it because your heart wanted to do it. Um, you know, it's kind of like, in a way, Paul is saying, I'm not around to be a hall monitor or a vice principal. I, I don't, I don't want to be. Why? Because if you're only obeying because you've got a hall monitor or a vice principal, some of you don't even know what that means, maybe. Uh, some of us know vice principal was the one who went around in the hallway to warm your rear end if you got out of line. I mean, and I'm, a lot of people right now today under the age of 25 or 30 wouldn't even know what warm your rear end means, but, but us old people do. My vice principal had only two fingers and three nubs, and we called him nubs behind his back, and what we would do is actually come up to our friends and put nubs on, his, on their shoulder just to scare them to think that they were getting nubbed, but anyway, that's beside the point. <laughs> but this is what he says. When you don't have somebody looking over your shoulder, it's possible to obey. Why? And, and what's the context of the obedience is he's just been getting through telling people, consider others more important than yourself. Have the attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus. He's just been saying, don't, don't live your life for the purpose of satisfying yourself. That's what he's been saying in Philippians 2. And now what he's doing is he's talking about obeying that. By the way, if you just stop and think about it, is there a lot better way to summarize what the Christian life is supposed to be about? Be like Christ. Consider others more important than yourself. I mean, that's so much of the summary. Why the New Testament tells us twice that the whole law is summed up in this. Love others as you love yourself. So that what he's talking about is obeying God. That's really what he's talking about. But notice what he says. I love this. I just love it. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's kind of like Colossians 1, 28, 29, where he says, after saying, I, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says, for this purpose, I labor, striving. In other words, there's a lot of work involved, but it's according to his power, which works in me. That's the same thing Philippians 2 is saying. It's God. When I was a junior in college, my best friend and I were praying. And uh, I, I prayed, Lord, there was something God was laying on my heart that I knew he wanted me to do, and I didn't want to do it. So I prayed, Lord, make me willing to be willing to do what you would have me do. And my friend goes, time out, bogus, lame prayer. That is not a prayer. We're not going to keep going. You're going to clean that thing up. And I said, what? He said, if you know what God wants you to do, you just do it, period. I said, look, my deal is if I did, I would do it in the short term, but I know me. I will be stubborn and I'll find a way to do what I want. I'm saying I want God to change me on the inside. He goes, no, you do it or you don't do it. And my friend's still that way. He's an engineer in Richmond, structural engineer and. For him at that time, Christianity was structural engineering too. So just do it. And, and it's interesting because just he and I meet every year at uh, Good Friday down the, down the valley in the Blue Ridge. And I pointed out to him a couple of Good Fridays ago, by the way, I found a verse that, le that legitimized my lame prayer from 40 years ago. And he said, what? And I quoted that verse to him and he goes, I don't know about that. But... <laughs> But notice what it says. He is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now think about that. It means God 
not only will enable you to obey him, he'll even enable you to want it. I'm not saying that when I don't want it, I have a get-out-of-jail card. I'm not saying that. I need to walk in an obedient way. But what's so cool is the Bible is sufficient to tell me, John, there are times when we don't want to do what God wants us to do. And God is so good that according to his word, you can trust him to work not only the doing, but the willing. Now that, that is a kind of God I can obey. A God who would take my sins? A God who would save me forever? A God who would let me know him? A God who would show me that his word is worth trusting because he's worth trusting? And a God who tells me, John, I will be at work in you both to will and to do my good pleasure. See, that's a God I want to serve. And that's the Bible that we have. That's what it teaches. It tells me that that power to obey Him is the very power of Christ in you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just thank you for the fact that you give us the Bible so that we can know you. We can meet you if we never have met you really by faith. We can grow to know you better. We can trust you because of all the things that are true about your word. We, we, we have a word that is sufficient for getting our souls restored and our eyes opened up and to show us where the rewards are. And Lord, on top of all of that, you enable us to obey you. Not as if you were just looking over our shoulder, but even when no one's there, you build the sweet kind of obedience that comes from the heart, not ultimately from fear. And I just pray, Father, for all of us as we go through this series that you would help us, that you would help us to see the sweetness of your word and that we would long for it and draw near it as we draw near you. And it's in Jesus' name that we thank you. Amen.